Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to The Who on YouTube live stream. We're really pleased to have as many people as we can get on YouTube. That is something that will help us with the quality of both the sound and the video, which is great. Welcome in, Peter Bale, co-host of The Hoon from Hoon Bay. Bernard, it's very good to see you. It's, I've, I've, had a, I've had an oddly fatigued day. I just made a summer pudding for a dinner I have to go to tomorrow. Is it bread and butter pudding? It, no, no, it's, it's, a, it's a summer pudding with a bread base um, using a Jamie Oliver recipe, which and with which a friend of mine, Robert, who I think is probably listening to the Kaka, recommended a thing that Jamie does as well, which is put glad wrap inside the bowl so that when you flip it, it just comes out and looks absolutely spectacular. Ah! So you know you come to you come to the hoon for not just. I mean, we are the most metrosexual people we know. I know. Well, I certainly <laughs> am, Bernard. But yeah, you come to the hoon for the cooking tips as well, and also yeah. Now that today FM's gone, I think we need to start doing this. It, you know, daily at eight o'clock, or should we start getting up at six in the morning and doing you know doing a two-hour drive time show, but only broadcasting to people with electric cars, and certainly uh, not broadcasting to people with double cab utes. That is one way to do it. Yep. Mm. I was quite struck by that Today FM destruction this week. I know that's only one of the stories we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Donald Trump, the awkwardly named AUKUS, and New Zealand's rather weird attempt to talk about coming in on it. Uh, we might talk about Bibi Netanyahu, who I I have to admit I find I have found right since the beginning of the of the first Gulf War one of the most despicable oh, uh, international ago. leaders. Yeah, right from that long ago when he appeared on CNN wearing a um, gas mask just to add drama to the entire thing. Uh, and then we're going to talk, what, with Sam Stubbs from Simplicity? That's right. From 5.45 to uh, nearly 6 o'clock where you'll have a skateboarding dog. And from 5.30 to 5.45, we're going to talk to Andrew Eccleston, who is an academic who follows the whole area of... Who's a lobster. Lobster. <laughs> An academic who follows the area of lobbyists. Ah, lobbyists, uh, not lobsters. No, and lobbyists and the OAA and how public policy is made and obviously very topical, not just in the wake of the Stuart Nash. Oh, but Bernard, it's not just public policy. It's just because we're all mates. Everybody knows. We're just It's all totally transparent. Totally tra Yeah, well, we can talk about that. That's, that's good. And we'll also talk uh, with Sam Stubbs about housing. I had a nice visit today in one of the many houses that are being built by Simplicity Living in Auckland. Mm -hmm. Did you decide to buy one? Well, I would if he if he would sell them, but these are being built for build to rent. And uh, it's fascinating the story of how he's able to build mm. homes in Auckland for $2,000 a square metre, whereas Kainga Ora and everyone else is having to spend $4,000 a square metre. Mm. I think I probably know why Kainga Ora costs so much, but I, I won't disclose that at this point. Yep. So that's the plan for today. And in the first 15 minutes or so, Peter and I are going to talk about the local stuff. And in particular, well... And the thing that's just happened. Yeah. <laughs> Donald Trump has been indicted. Oh. First ever sitting president to be indicted. Is there a picture that's not AI with him in handcuffs? That's what I want to see. No, no, but that's right. Well, we showed the AI pictures last week. So that's, you know, we've, we've got ahead of, we have got slightly ahead of this. So Alvin Bragg, the US District Attorney for Manhattan, has issued an indictment. Interestingly, and very, very importantly, we still don't know exactly what the indictment is for. We assume, or it is assumed, that it's about uh, hiding the payment to Stormy Daniels, uh, which Michael Cohen carried out for him, and which was billed as legal expenses inside the Trump organisation. 
So it is not illegal for Trump to invest in his own campaign spending. It is illegal, but it is only, it would appear, a misdemeanor in New York and therefore punishable only by a less than a year's sentence to uh, falsify business records. So it has to be assumed, given everything around this and given the immense shit fight that has surrounded this over the last 10 days, which, interesting, and I hadn't thought about this until I read a story today about it, that Trump has, one of the reasons why Trump leaked or, or said that he was going to be arrested last Tuesday was that he's had a kind of 10-day run-up of raising money on the back of this. And so oh, we have yeah. to be you know, really careful with the idea that there will be a certain percentage, almost 50% of the American public, who will look at this and say, ha, got him banged to rights. And then you've got 70% of Republicans who may well say, actually, he's being hounded. So I, I think it's really important that we look as soon as we can see it, which won't be until... Uh, at least until Tuesday when the indictment is unfurled, as it were, there are likely to be, there have to be, I think, many, many more charges of much greater gravity than just accidentally misdescribing the payment to Stormy Daniels as legal fees. But it's often the technicality that gets them, isn't it? I mean, that's how they got Well, this is the Al Capone. This is the Al Capone thing, and it may be that. But there is a precedent in uh, the First World War of a presidential candidate standing for the presidency from prison. There is absolutely nothing in the Constitution or precedent that would prevent Trump continuing to campaign as a presidential candidate, even if he were imprisoned, and certainly not if he's just indicted. So, you know, this is going to be quite a a saga. Now, Penny, you used to live in Washington uh, for some time and rubbed up against the various... Uh, Fortunately, I didn't rub up against him, although his Trump hotel was was, uh, being finished off in the post office when I was there, yeah. Oh, right. And you were one of the the people in 2020 who said to me after Trump had lost, but Mm -hmm. before the inauguration, that there was a real risk of some sort of massive uh, riot and that there would be some sort Mm -hmm. of attempted coup, which I have to say I... I poo-pooed. You thought I was being extreme. Yeah. Yeah. I think the weird thing here has been that they will stop at nothing, you know, because you've got these extraordinary – I mean, it was interesting to see there was a couple of polls in the US this week for Fox News which showed that that, uh, Ron DeSantis, who hasn't announced his candidacy yet, is falling away a little bit, which Trump actually said would happen or had happened. It it, it is true that his his percentages are falling slightly in the Republican Party and Trump's are getting more and more robust. I mean, these polls came out before this indictment. But, you know, Trump is still the preferred candidate, as we'll discuss when we look at the risks of AUKUS as well. You know, he's still the preferred candidate of of a significant majority of the Republican Party. So so he would literally have to be convicted and in prison to stop him running as president. No, no, that wouldn't stop him running at all. So he could be elected president from within prison? A conviction would not stop him. He could be jailed. He could be running from jail. That's exactly what I'm talking about. There was a precedent with a chap called... Eugene Debs, who was running for president during the First World War and was convicted for opposing the First World War. He was a socialist. And he ran for the presidency, having been convicted and doing it from jail. There's, I mean, it's, it's a ludicrous thing to think about, but we've seen more ludicrous things here. You know, we've kind of had our equivalents of the Reichstag fire on, on January the 6th. You know, these people, are, what is so extraordinary about it, Bernard, is to me in a way, is that this we're talking about a generational shift of grumpy white people in the United States who are trying to hold back a demographic and democratic shift 
And standing up against that is uh, a rather elderly and doddery, to some extent, uh, Joe Biden, and not much else. Yeah, and he is obviously going to have to run uh, again because the uh, vice presidential candidate or vice president is unlikely to run or be successful or be seen to be successful in running. So everyone has to hope that Joe Biden lives. But also, if Trump were to win, we would be in a position where Trump, who is clearly sympathetic at best to uh, Vladimir Putin, Mm. may be compromised in various ways by both or one or the other, Russia or China. And, you know, we are potentially um, hooking ourselves up to the American uh, steam train. And if we also think about, in in my uh, spin-off thing, a couple of times I've talked about the resurrection, uh, and by that I mean the resurrection of Bibi Netanyahu, who, you know, one thought had a stake through his heart, and then Donald Trump, who you just think could not possibly recover from the scandals, but of course does every time, and of course was not convicted, as it, as it were, in the in the US Congress of or impeached. You know, he had the impeachment trial, but he was not successfully impeached and, and prosecuted there. So, you know, you've got these two phenomena where, you know, look at Israel, 70-year democracy, uh, proportional representation, a hugely sort of dynamic, slightly mad occasionally democracy. And you've got Bibi Netanyahu effectively pushing through a kind of quasi-fascist agenda with the help of his extreme right coalition partner, who famously had a portrait in his house of the man who shot 29 Palestinians in, in <sighs> Hebron, you know, and himself has a conviction for uh, racial incitement. And one of the prices for Netanyahu delaying this shift to try and... Reform is always such a funny word. We talk about, oh, it's a judicial reform. Yep, it's actually a sabotage of the traditional role of the of the judiciary in Israel. But one of the prices is to create a new Israeli National Guard, which would mm. report directly to the Minister of National Security, who is Ben Gavir, this right-wing orthodox guy. He says it would be there to combat nationalist crime, terrorism, and enforce governance. And it is extraordinary to think of the, you know, the the history that we've all had, the the support that Israel's had a lot over the you know over the last seventy seventy five years, for this to be the result, and that's why you see six percent of the entire Israeli population out protesting this, and you know, but Bibi is the most extraordinary. I mean, like Trump, there's no bounds to his um, cynicism. Yeah, I mean, dramas and democracies all over the world, but and ours seem relatively benign <laughs> compared to that. But again, all about the power of money to influence politics and uh, how our politicians disclose their information to the public and how much control we have over, over our politicians. This week, Stuart Nash uh, was sacked unceremoniously from Cabinet by the Prime Minister, and we'll talk about that later with Andrew Eccleston. Well, quite but, ceremoniously, in a sense, because he because he was you know on his he was on his last warning. But yes. I, you know, we'll talk when we talk to to Eccleston about this. I'm not sure whether he can help us with this question that that National has rightly raised. Mark Dalder, our friend at Newsroom, has also raised mm. that the uh, FOIA OIA yep. requests that were uh, have been made showed that the requests for for Nash's communications should have clearly included this communication with his two donors and that that decision went all the way up to Jacinda Ardern's office. And somehow she wasn't told. 
That's right. And I'm, I'm not sure that that is entirely credible, but it does seem to me as though somebody in her office wasn't entirely sensible with this. But then I suspect they get so many OIAs that this, they, they're then that when they make a poor decision, it comes back to bite them. But I think that's being rather generous. Speaking of unceremonious sackings, this one happened live on air this week with Today FM. We had um, Tover O'Brien uh, breaking into programming to tell everyone that... They fucked us. I mean, we yep. say that anyway. In fact, I was looking at a um, transcript of one of our sessions with Simon, our producer, and, I, and the, the, I've deleted it, but the number of profane remarks were quite high. But yes, They Fucked Us is going to go down on New Zealand broadcasting history. I thought it was a bit silly of Newsroom this week to go F dot 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 dot. But um, <laughs> when, the, when yeah. the Financial Times uses the full word, the Absolutely. UCK, no asterisks. No, I mean, if right. the FT does it, I'm, I'm up for it. Absolutely. No FT, no fucked. But that's right. It's, yeah. um, it's, it's a real, uh, it's, it's sad, it's unfortunate. But I also don't really believe this idea that they were only losing a million dollars a year. But if they were, that seems after one year, after, you know, not, not making a, a huge dent in Mike Hosking and so on, although of all, all of us would probably quite like to make a small dent in Mike Hosking one way or another. But, or a medium-sized um, dent. You know, they, they, they really were hung out to dry. And I was absolutely flabbergasted, Bernard, by the comment by the new acting chief executive, that had she known the state of the books, that she never would have taken the job, you know, which is rather silly. Yeah. It also rather shows that Cam, Cam Wallace may not be quite the lovely chap that everybody everybody thinks he is, which I, I don't think is literally defamatory, but, um, you know, he's gone mm. off to, to, to work at Qantas. Yes, and uh, I actually think this is about interest rates. I think most things yes. are oh, about yes. interest Good rates idea. and house prices. Because the real player here is Oak Tree, the private equity company that owns MediaWorks. Mm. They've had to deal with a massive increase in interest rates. Their whole model is based on cheap debt being used to leverage up some equity to quickly build some profitability back into a company and flick it on for a massive leveraged capital gain. That all mm -hmm. works when interest rates are naught. But when they're nearly 5%, the pain is extraordinary. And it wouldn't surprise me if they've just decided to clear the decks and try yeah. and just slash costs because that's the model for private equity and media. But Bernard, what actually is MediaWorks now? It's music radio. And that's one of the factors here is that the driving forces in the radio part of the business are really all about music. And then it has outdoor advertising, which is an interesting area. But that outdoor advertising business is now essentially run by Oak Tree, isn't it? Owned by Oak Tree more directly. Uh, no, I'm pretty sure in New Zealand it's, it's owned by MediaWorks. But it is part of the model there for MediaWorks to try to sell jointly uh, radio and outdoor. And, of course, outdoor has been completely uh, transformed in the last couple of years by all of these electronic billboards, mm -hmm. which they all thought was a great idea at the time that they'd be able to sell television advertising for billboards. But, of course, everyone worked out very quickly. You could sell lots of advertising, but, of course, that increased the volume and reduced the price. It's great to see Robert Patman join us. Thank you very much, Robert. And we were just sort of previewing this session. There's a lot of things that have happened this week. Peter, you you wanted to talk about uh, Israel and what's going on there, Robert. It's it's you know we we ask you to talk. I mean, you are a professor of international affairs, and we 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 sometimes want to talk to you about affairs, and then sometimes we want to talk to you about international things. The whole idea of what Israel is or has been as a kind of uh, you know remarkable proportional representation democracy that brings together all of those. You know, there's something you could say about Israelis, which is what they what they say about um, Romanians. Is that more, more than more than two two Romanians is a is a schism? You know, and you are you know you're inviting into a into a schism. 
How do you read this kind of potential to redefine what Israel is, both through the Supreme Court reforms, mm. as it were, and this further decision to try and create a uh, national guard, as it were, underneath the control of, of the right-winger um, Ben Gavir? Yes, it seems to have been a major misjudgment by uh, Benjamin uh, Netanyahu. He's been a very successful in electoral terms. He's uh, won six elections, I think, and he's certainly been in power for in the proportional representation system that Israel has. I mm -hmm. think he's he's been very successful. He's been in power more than fifteen years, so uh, over six uh, different administrations. So, but there is a sense this time. 18 months ago, many people thought he was in the wilderness. He's made a comeback, but he's made mm. some um, deals with uh, extreme nationalist uh, right-wing coalition partners. And um, he's always been hardline over the Palestinian issue, of course. But he, he's, you know, some commentators believe that he just didn't have a particularly strong interest in constitutional matters in the same way that he does in economics and diplomacy and mm. security. Mm. and may have taken his eye off the ball and therefore not anticipated the reaction. Is, is, it, is it your view, Robert, as it is mine, that this will, within the next three to four months, lead to another election? It could do. And what's very interesting is that Joe Biden, the, the American president, is making no secret of the fact that he's not happy with Netanyahu's leadership. He's asked Netanyahu to back away from this. Yeah. Uh, Netanyahu's effectively said mm. no and told America to mind its own business, which is interesting given... He most certainly has. Uh, ...given the fact that the United States gives Israel about a $4 billion subsidy every year at the beginning of each year, unusually, so it gets the interest on the money yeah. given. So, yeah, I mean, this is... Uh, it, it's very interesting. When Biden was asked if he would be seeing Netanyahu near, uh, uh, soon, he said, not in the near future. I hope not. <laughs> No, exactly. And Netanyahu, as you know, just loves to be there, loves to be treated like a, you know, like 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 he feels he is. It's a very complex. One. I, I found writing about this week. I had somebody complain to me that I that I wasn't addressing the Palestinian issue well enough while while describing the dynamism of the Israeli democracy. But in in a sense, if you, if the Palestinian Authority was any stronger, this would be an even more dangerous moment. Yeah, but it's no excuse for the fact that under Netanyahu. The occupation of the West Bank has carried on relentlessly and there have been legal decisions which have effectively um, been contrary to Resolution 242 of 1967. Mm. So, mm. you know, I think the Israeli settlers now in the West Bank number more than 500,000. And, you know, in a sense, one of the great failings of the United States as a global power, I believe, has not been, an, uh, to be, you know, it, it's been... As by Biden's account, it's been very pro-Israeli, and he describes himself as a very, mm -hmm. very pro-Israeli president. But it hasn't always been receptive enough to the Palestinian desire for national self-determination, and this it, it, is a big no. issue because it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't just confine or concern what the Palestinians think of the United States. It's what the rest of the Arab world also think. Yes, although of course, Robert, he has, you know, he has done the the Abraham Accords with with Donald Trump. And therefore, you have this extraordinary phenomenon, particularly of the Gulf states, yeah. um, opening up diplomatic relations with the with with, uh, and the Palestinians have been rather hung out to dry. There, you're, you're right to raise this point. Unfortunately, most of the Arab states, including the Gulf states, pay lip service to the Palestinian cause, but mm. have done very little to advance it.
But all I'm saying is that it's interesting now that we have a pro-Israeli administration, the Democrats under Biden, and the Biden administration and Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, have not high, not in any way hidden their irritation with mm. Netanyahu's leadership. Netanyahu may be banking on Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump making some sort of return to the White House yeah. in um, 2024. It's no secret that Netanyahu really liked Donald Trump enormously and um, vice versa, apparently. Well, I think they just feel, I, I think Netanyahu feels as though he can manipulate Donald Trump. The amazing thing about, about Netanyahu, and I was thinking about this, you know, I sometimes wonder whether I'm, unf- I'm unfair about him, but I've always loved the, and I put it in my spin off thing this week, the off mic, the accidental uh, hot mic thing with Obama and Sarkozy where they both start talking about Bibi Netanyahu and Obama says to, says to Sarkozy, you think he's an asshole or liar. You know, he just lies to me all the time. I have to deal with him every day. He's, you know, he's an appalling liar. And, you know, the, the, the sort of extraordinary chutzpah, uh, to use possibly the correct word, actually, with Netanyahu is just remarkable. And what are the risks, Robert, if we saw a Netanyahu in power at the same time as a Trump in power? Before you came on, we were talking about the potential for Trump to win the presidency from inside a jail cell. So what are the risks for the world, if you like, of that? Because you've got Iran in turmoil, you've got um, Saudi Arabia uh, throwing its weight around Israel, you know, flying jets and and taking out various buildings and people whenever they feel like it in various parts of the Middle East. Yeah. I mean, how how could this? What could that look like for the for the well, world? I think the danger to the United States was that its uh, reputation as a superpower would diminish further. I, I do not think there is an awareness within the United States that its position with respect to the Israeli Palestinian conflict has hurt them. You talk to, as I have, American senators and journalists, and at times you get a feeling that America operates as if it's in a world unto itself, and that what's, you know, if America decides on something, well, the world will go along with it. And I'm sympathizing enormously, and I know a lot of Americans don't take that view. Uh, but at the moment, and a couple of uh, scholars, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt, made this point in a a very important book of many years ago, yes. which they got much criticised for. I, I find that one of the most extraordinary events. I mean, because it was one of those ones that really, because it was, I think we need to explain this because I've referred to it a few times, but it's it was a book about the extent to which US foreign policy had been driven by Israel since 1947, right? Yeah, they showed that Israel was a key factor in the illegal invasion mm. of Iraq and also a lobbyist for a tough line towards Iran. And one of the reasons Biden is very irritated with Netanyahu is because he hasn't forgotten when he was vice president in the mm-hmm. Obama administration that Netanyahu you led the charge to try to sabotage the deal that the Obama administration was negotiating with the Iranians as part of a multilateral effort to try to contain the prospect of Iran getting a nuclear weapon. And, uh, yeah, the, this, the, it's very interesting – one other thing about the Israeli thing that I think we should mention, though, before we pass on, is these extraordinary protests which are yeah. occurring in Israel. And I think the government have been shaken by the sheer scale of Absolutely. these protests. And, um, yeah, and I think it's causing uh, real strains within Israel. And um, it, it's, it's very difficult to predict how it's go, 
I think Netanyahu still thinks he can prevail. He he seems to have said that he wants to you know have a sort of cooling off period, mm-hmm. but apparently he said to supporters that he has no intention of backing down and will pursue yeah attempt to have the ability to appoint judges. Yeah, I was listening yesterday to it, to, not not to endorse anybody else's podcast, but a rather marvellous podcast I hadn't heard before called Jews on the News, uh, which includes Jonathan Friedland, the, the Guardian correspondent. And they were pointing out that Bibi Netanyahu's son, uh, who is a sort of Breitbarty kind of extreme right-winger, you know, really is a very strong driving force behind him and appears to believe that he's plugged into the kind of true true thought of Israel as mm. opposed to the you know to the liberals in that in those immense uh, protests right um robert i while we're talking about uh, how much we trust us foreign policy i just thought it'd be worth talking about AUKUS light mm. and uh, the potential for new zealand to join so called pillar 2 of AUKUS andrew little said this week he was interested in thinking about it we haven't had a debate you know really in a, any sort of great national sense you've been a, a commentator in this space what do you think of, of new zealand joining AUKUS light or AUKUS pillar 2 I think the government must point out the very real advantages of doing it because there are several disadvantages. Mm. First of all, we're told that one of the reasons the government wants to explore this option is because of the availability of cutting-edge defence technology. But uh, let's be quite clear on this. New Zealand's already a member of the Five Eyes intelligence-sharing arrangement. It has excellent bilateral relations with Australia and and the United States. And it's also a partner of NATO. So it has quite a lot of international connections. And it seems quite strange that three English-speaking countries, which have assumed responsibility for protecting the Indo-Pacific from the Chinese threat, that they will sort of not talk to New Zealand about sort of technological options. Um, Mm. You know, it, it just seems... Uh, look, I may be wrong. We, 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 you know, the, the government may have a very logical explanation for this, but there are some real disadvantages that need to be seriously considered. And that is, first of all, many countries in the Indo-Pacific are very wary of AUKUS. There hasn't been mm. huge endorsements from Japan or South Korea, and also some countries have been openly critical, which is uh, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia. These countries, by the way, have no illusions about Chinese assertiveness. Now, you may say, what's that got to do with New Zealand? Well, first of all, we stand for a non-nuclear position. All members of ASEAN have signed up uh, to uh, a nuclear weapon-free zone in 1995, uh, and they express concern about Australia triggering a proliferation of nuclear weapons in their region. So I think we have to be very careful. That's one side. But the other side comes down to economic self-interest. This country, and I think many people agree, both in the National Party and Labour Party and probably in the other parties, needs to economically diversify. We're doing this. But we also need to connect with those. We'd like to do more business with Japan, and we'd like to connect with some of those emerging Mm -hmm. economies in the Indo-Pacific, like Vietnam, we're doing business with them, but we'd like to do more. We'd like to do more of yeah. Indonesia, a huge market. Robert, on the on the US alliance thing, just kind of this is one of the reasons, isn't it, that the US has not has not just sort of expanded AUKUS. It's got the Quad, 
with uh, yeah. Japan and, and, and South Korea and, and India. It's the reason that they've got these different kind of options because they understand the difference. I, mean, I, I was really struck. A friend of mine, Geraldine Brooks, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author, wrote a piece, very good piece in the Sydney Morning Herald, a commentary about this, about Australia zip-tying itself to the United States yet again. And the risk of yeah. doing that when when you've got you know a doddery old president and then the prospect of as she's what forty percent of Americans and a staggering seventy percent of Republicans believe the lie that he's an illegitimate president you know this is there could be some very weird shit coming down the path yeah. to the alliance with Australia and the United States. Yeah, the other thing is that former Prime Minister Paul Keating's made this point. It's very expensive for Australia more. But somewhere between two hundred and sixty-eight billion and three hundred and seventy-eight billion, and yep. are we overhyping the Chinese threat? Yes, China's assertive and, and and has global ambitions, but it's got vulnerabilities. It's got a deeply unattractive political system. People are happy yep. to do business with it, but don't necessarily warm to the Chinese. Uh, exactly, and nor do the Chinese necessarily warm to Xi, yeah. as we saw. You know, I mean, he he did a he did a really impressive backflip on on the COVID, you know, restrictions. It's a very interesting set of problems. I I, I wonder if the Harbour Bridge in Auckland is going to cost more than the more than the Australian contribution to 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 the Orca submarines, though. I, I mean, Paul Keating has made the point that it could place it, it could halt Australia's efforts to economically diversify in the Indo Pacific yeah. because once again it re- reinforced the perception that. America is not sufficiently independent of the United States in its foreign policy. and You mean that Australia is not sufficiently independent? Yeah, Australia, sorry. Yeah, And it will also reinforce, I mean, on New Zealand's side, if we were part of it, even as a partial member, it might dilute the perception that we have an independent foreign policy in the eyes of many countries in in the Indo-Pacific. And it might also weaken our efforts to economically diversify beyond China if we get that sort of response. So yeah. let, let's see how the government handles it. It's an interesting development, but being a partial member of AUKUS to, just to get access to technological discussions seems a bit strange given the number of connections New Zealand already has uh, yeah. with those actors. Robert, thank you very much. Lovely to have you and uh, really enjoyed the, the – See you, Prof. Robert. Thank you very much. Really good to see you. Thank you. Cheers. I'd like to welcome into the Hoon now a fresh special guest, uh, Andrew Eccleston from the Victoria University or the University of Victoria's Institute of Public Policy Studies. Uh, Andrew is an expert in the OAA and has been looking a lot at what is happening with the area of lobbying. Over the last uh, two or three weeks, there's been a bunch of investigations from Radio New Zealand. Guy and Espen has done a great job in getting hold of some very interesting correspondence between all sorts of lobbyists and ministers um, through documents obtained under the Official Information Act, uh, which is interesting, and has exposed the very cosy nature of those discussions and the fact that they're all unregulated. Andrew, what's your view on whether our lobbying industry should be regulated, how it should be regulated, and also whether or not our revolving door non-policy is sustainable. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And it was really interesting to listen to Professor Patman talk about Israel. Uh, so, first of all, we have almost no regulation around this uh, issue of lobbying in New Zealand. And what that means is that vested commercial interests 
have disproportionate power uh, uh, to shape government policy, well beyond the ability of NGOs or ordinary people. And what they do is they use that power and those connections to shape policies for their own financial benefit, regardless of whether those financial benefits for the companies are at the expense of people's health, the environment, or society more broadly. And many other countries have quite well-developed regulations around lobbying and things like revolving doors. Canada's, for example, can be as long as five years. And Hmm. you might recall in the news a couple of weeks ago, there was some discussion about Sue Gray leaving the Cabinet Office in the UK and going to be Chief of Staff for Keir Starmer. Mm. Well, immediately the question in the UK was, is the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments going to require her to have a stand-down period of anything up to two Mm. years? Mm. Right? Yet in New Zealand, we have Chris Farfoy going from being a minister to being a lobbyist overnight. Yeah, uh, uh, it wasn't quite overnight. It was three months, but let's put it this Uh, way. He clearly had relevant current policy knowledge from cabinet discussions when he set up his stall as being a a lobbyist. In some quite important important briefs as well, um, Andrew, because of of this problem, this additional problem you have in New Zealand where, particularly under Labour at the moment, you've got a sort of in a pool of particularly perhaps clever or, or um, uh, uh, cabinet members who have multiple portfolios, you know, and he had broadcasting, immigration and justice. Those are pretty tricky ones. No, those are pretty interesting ones for people who want to lobby. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think we should leave aside the fact that we have revolving doors of other kinds, uh, including the Prime Minister's chief, new Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, revolving in from working for a lobbying company where where he'd gone to after he'd been a senior official in the Labour Party. Same with Neil Jones going back outwards to a lobbying company after being a chief of staff. Th- yeah. This thing happens all the time. One of the things I thought was interesting this morning was Peter Dunn's column in Newsroom saying, mm-hmm. when I was a minister, I more or less ignored this because I was interested in working. If people wanted to lobby me, if they worked for the company that was lobbying me and they had actual subject matter knowledge, then I might listen to them. But if companies go, if they go off and hire a lobbying company, then basically I'm just dealing with a messenger and they don't actually have the subject knowledge. But I think in some ways this might be a generational thing and you get more experience as a minister and you say, no, I'm not going to listen to them. I'm going to form my own opinions. But we've got a generation of ministers who went to university with the current generation of lobbyists. They're all good mates. You can see from the text messages disclosed, shall we meet up for a beer and a yarn, right? It's extremely informal. Now, you could argue that that's just New Zealand. We're so small, everyone knows everyone. And there was this comment last year when we saw uh, Jacinda Ardern asked about this. She said, well, everyone knows who everyone is. Everyone knows who's lobbying for who. Everyone does. Why should we formalise it? What do you think of that argument that we're so small, it it doesn't matter, everyone knows anyway? So there's two separate things there. One, yes, we're small. But no, not everyone knows what's going on. That's completely false. We don't have any regulations that require lobbyists to disclose a list of their clients. So when you have lobbyists going on, say, Radio New Zealand, they're not required to disclose a list of their clients, whether it's Matthew Hooten or Neil Jones, okay? 
or David Cormack or David Farah. The list goes on and on, right? So yes, it's a small country and people have connections, but that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't have lobbying. In fact, uh, lobbying regulation, in fact, it means the case for lobbying regulation is even stronger so that we can be sure that the safeguards that we, we have in place are working. Andrew, I'm keen to ask about the Official Information Act. Um, Stuart Nash's demise this week has been linked in part to the uh, apparent decision to not release the particular email that uh, included the revelations about his disclosing cabinet decisions and his unhappiness with them. You're a close observer and of the Official Information Act. Does it need to be reformed? Yes, it needs a serious overhaul. And that's where I part company with some journalists like David Fisher, who quite rightly is concerned about a government taking the opportunity for reform to actually weaken the legislation, which is what's happened in many other countries. And I would absolutely not say that it isn't a dangerous moment, because the moment you open the Pandora's box of reform, you you may see people wanting to stick their oar in and weaken it. And generally, the longer a government has been in office, the more inclined it is to do that, because it's got more experience of the pain of dealing with requests than of being in opposition and being frustrated by government gaming their requests. So the time for reform would have been straight after the 2017 general election. I suspect Claire Curran wanted to get on with it. Whether or not she handled proposals to make those changes well is another matter. There have been some bits of OIA disclosures which suggested that she took something to Cabinet but was shot down. And Andrew Little, nearly three years ago, said after a a previous public consultation on should we have a review of the OIA, Andrew Little was pressed by Nicky MacDonald at Stuff and said, uh, if Labour are re-elected in 2020, Chris Hipkins and I will rewrite the OIA. So he kind of of leapfrogged the whole question of should we have a review of the OIA to yes, we will get on and rewrite it. Well, of course, after the election, he wasn't Justice Minister anymore and Chris Farfoy put it on the back burner. I wonder then, do we need a stronger ombudsman or do we need a change in the way the law is currently operating? Because right now, there is a military-industrial complex of sorts involving PR people, comms people in the government departments, hundreds of people who are there to block, deal with, respond to, cut out bits of OAAs. And as a journalist in the press gallery... There's an awful lot of time spent asking for things, being denied, appealing for things. It's it's like it's become this trench warfare between journalists and lobbyists. And and also the spirit, Bernard. You know, the spirit is just not I mean that's that what what seems so extraordinary about the about the decisions on the on the Nash stuff is that they were entirely you know, the Mark's requests for that information, Mark Dalders, were entirely within the spirit of the of the legislation and of the request. And, you know, they really had to find some, the, the uh, Prime Minister's office and Nash's office had to find some pretty extraordinary weasel words to decide that they weren't. Well, first of all, I don't think they even bothered to find some weasel words. They, they just at flat out contradicted the law. They knew perfectly well what was going on. The more interesting question is to, was there a deliberate decision to provide the Prime Minister and her Chief of Staff with plausible deniability over what they'd seen about Nash disclosing com- cabinet information to his donors. One of the areas where the OIA needs substantial reform is to take it off the ombudsman. I was an investigator in the ombudsman's office for 12 years, tried to move the needle on individual complaints where I could. Some ombudsmen were more ambitious in that area where they, where they could be. 
but fundamentally an ombudsman works by persuasion and recommendation. They don't have order-making powers, and that's why many other newer freedom of information regimes, uh, the regulator is an information commissioner who has power to make orders that can be upheld by courts, and that if you disagree with the information commissioner's decisions, you can appeal them to an information tribunal and then on to the courts. And that's how in the UK, for example, we saw a Guardian journalist, Rob Evans, going all the way to the Supreme Court to get Prince Charles's memos to ministers on policy issues that he was bothered about. Okay, But there are a number of other issues. We need penalties for obstruction of requests. Uh, so, for example, in 72 other countries, including the UK, Canada, Ireland, and Netherlands, and mm-hmm. India, it's a criminal offence if you intentionally obstruct the disclosure of information that should be released under the Act. Okay? New Zealand is in a small minority of only 38 countries that have no offence in this area. And it's long past time we, over, we mm. overhauled that. But, but that's, that's where the Prime Minister, though, that's where the former Prime Minister, though, just said, everybody knows. You know, it's all just because we're Every, all mates. Everybody knows what, though? That everybody, you know, it's all transparent because we all know each other. Well... We're probably related um, to each other. That's simply not the case because otherwise journalists would never need to file an OIA request. They'd simply yeah, I know. Uh, talk to MPs on the tiles and over a drink in the back bencher and nobody would ever need to file an OIA request. So it's simply not true. Are there any are there any uh, OIAs though, Andrew, that are that are vexatious and that are just and that journalists are just trying it on? You know, not to um, put, not not to crap on my own people, of course. Um, you can definitely get vexatious OIA requests. I think journalists are more clever than to put in vexatious OIA requests. Do they sometimes put in requests that are too broadly drafted? Maybe, and mm. that's where you start to see it taking time because the agency's got the quite rightly, got the ability under the law to go back to the requester and say, well, we could refuse this under the grounds of substantial collation and research, but if you want to help narrow the scope of your request, then we can perhaps get on and deal with it. So one of the problems that, for example, bedevils the US Freedom of Information Act is that there is no grounds for refusing on, mm. gra- on, on the basis of substantial collation and research. And so the average time for getting an FOI response out of the federal government in the US is about six years. Yeah. Right. And and, and 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 there are people with requests that have reached their seventeenth birthday. Right. <laughs> so 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 when people talk about delays here, right? Delays are not our worst problem. Our worst problem is that the withholding grounds in Section Six are not subject to a public interest override. For example, we don't have a legal regime for proactive disclosure around things like cabinet papers or policy advice or ministerial diaries or lobbying contacts that if that weren't complied with, you could go to an information commissioner and say they're not complying with the law. Again, many other modern freedom of information laws include regulation on proactive disclosure, including over the ditch in Australia. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on and enlightening us on this area. I agree with you. There needs to be regulation of lobbyists. But Bernard, we also still quite like the idea of a, of a gigantic loop between journalism and lobbying so that we well, can I, go in, make money, come back and everything, right? We're not that you and I have ever done that. Well, actually, Peter, one of, the, one of the most pernicious forms of revolving doors is actually journalists going into work for ministers as press officers. God forbid. That would never happen. We know, we know nobody who's ever done that. Because they get to sh- help shape public perception of what are the issues. And I'm I'm very glad and grateful to the supporters of the Kaka so that I don't have to do that. Thank you very much. Indeed. Andrew, thank you. Lovely to have you. 
Yeah, but have I seen, Bernard, that there's a couple of uh, – are there a couple of government ministers who subscribe to the kaka? couple. The whole cabinet. It's <laughs> lovely to see them. Yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I'd like to bring in Sam Stubbs now. Sam is the CEO of Simplicity, but is also doing something really interesting with uh, Shane Brearley, who is the founder of NZ Living. And uh, they are together uh, looking to essentially change the way we build houses in New Zealand. Sam took me around uh, the Simplicity Living site in Glen Innes this afternoon and uh, showed me how Simplicity Living is able to build very strong, very warm, dry and long-lasting homes for around $2,500 per square metre, while other home builders in New Zealand uh, are building uh, homes for four dollars to $7,000 per square metre. Sam, it's lovely to have you. Can you give us a sense of how you're able to do it? Yeah, look, I think uh, if you think about the New Zealand building industry, it's really sort of a phyllo pastry of fees and everything is very subscale and customised. And so that basically is the opportunity for a lot of people to get paid in the process of building a home. But that means almost no economies of scale uh, at, at any level. Uh, and that's from you know, building supplies straight through to consenting, subcontracting and so on. And so very simply what, what we do under Simplicity Living Now is we build, own and operate at scale, very much like a pension fund would do overseas. And, you know, if you think about the OECD now, about 42% of people living in the OECD actually live in apartments. And many of those apartments are owned by pension funds. So all we're doing is taking what's worked overseas and, and bringing it to New Zealand. There's not a single new idea in this. And I really don't like investing members' funds in new ideas generally like to do what's worked overseas and bring it here. So we're doing that, and, and it's a complete vertical integration. So from the buying of the land to the renting of the apartment and the maintaining of it is all done by ourselves. And that's how the economics work out. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no genius here at all. There's no special building materials, no special techniques. We just build good old-fashioned buildings out of concrete and brick. Uh, and we build them to and operate them to scale. Sam, do you, do you want us to introduce you to Nicola Willis, just in case she's the next finance minister? We you, we can have you on for a gin and tonic because my, my impression is, I mean, we've had you on a couple of times. Um, you and I don't know each other mm. yet, but other than other than having been on this, but my impression is that you and Mark Todd at Ockham are the two most imaginative people in this critical area of. Of housing, yeah. Look, I think. Uh, I mean, he, he's at a diff- he's at a slightly different end of it in a way, yeah. but you know, it's just extraordinary what you're achieving. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? So, me and Mark is and Ockham are building beautiful buildings, but you know, they're quite pricey, but they're beautiful and at scale, and they're wonderful. And then we're at sort of I wouldn't almost at the other end of the scale where we're building buildings which are um, sort of lower spec, but still, I mean, Bernard, you'll you know, you saw on this afternoon. Mm. Still perfectly livable for the vast majority of New Zealanders. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting, eh? It, it's tragic in a way that there's only two of us out there uh, in a market which is so desperately short of, short of housing. So, uh, however, you know, hopefully we will get this a connection between the, the KiwiSaver savings and the many billions of dollars which we will be saving and get it into some sort of scalable construction and, and start to build homes that everyone can live in. So sort of one of those things where, you know, you can talk about it forever, but let's just get off our chuffs and do it. But Bernard wants to talk to you about Glen Innes, which is not something we, I mean, in international affairs doesn't usually include Glen Innes, but how many, how many homes has Simplicity built? Well, we... Uh- we started this, uh, gosh, about 18 months ago, and we've got our first 170 uh, ready for renting. Uh, they'll all be 
up mm-hmm. by July this year, or the first just one. this part of the project, or is that your is that the whole of Simplicity? Just part of it. Uh, uh, this is just the first two projects, and then we have uh, land for another approximately eight hundred already bought uh, on the private market. And our, at the moment, we can build about two hundred and fifty homes a year, but we want to scale that up to about a thousand homes a year within within three years. And look, in theory, you can almost scale in to an almost unlimited amount because you really need only three things, which is land, and there's heaps of land. In spite of what people say, uh, uh, the problem is not is not shortage of land; it's shortage of capital to develop it. But you do need that money, uh, and that's where you know we we come in. And you also need construction capacity as well. But well organized construction capacity is pretty easy to scale up. You know, if you just like any other industry, if you just provide a long term visibility, a pipeline, certainty, you know, people scale up. And the sort of trades we're building are just everywhere, you know, concrete, electricians, plumbers, you know. And San, one of the things I, I was interested in was the Toyota way, the Kaizen techniques that you're using yeah. to make things efficient, done at scale, done in a standardised way so that you can really get things moving quickly, that they last a long time, so that everyone knows what is the thing that uh, needs to be replaced and there are things on hand, not everything's bespoke. But what I was really interested in, um, having worked in adjacent to the software industry and the idea of open source uh, coding, you're sort of inventing an open source coding for this Kaizen way for building medium density, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, you know, look, at from the time we first step onto a building site to the time that the apartments are finished, and it'll typically be 50 or 60, it's about about a 14 to 15 month window, which is very short, but also it's very efficient. You know, it's built with about a quarter of the waste, it's typical. And you're right, we're just, every project is a constant improvement. Of course, Shane and Anna really have been doing this for many years now. We're inheriting their IP, but equally also, we just decided, look, let's just make this IP free and available. So, um, for some time now, in fact, since we started this, we've been bundling up everything. It's, it's available in an in, in a online folder, and it will show you how to set up a building company, build, and you know, uh, and, and you can sell them if you want to or rent them if you want to. But we just want capacity into the market because even yeah. if we're building 1,000 homes a year, that is 5% of the replacement rate of homes in New Zealand. So it doesn't matter how successful we are. We'd actually quite like you know, 10 or 15 or 20 people to be as successful so we can just get the, 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 the damn supply of houses up because fundamentally, and, and I know, sorry, I think almost overly simply about this, but it doesn't matter how you structure it. doesn't matter what tax treatment you have or whatever. Fundamentally, it is a supply and demand issue. And there simply is not enough supply at a reasonable cost. Actually, Sam, one of our one of our listeners, Billy Cook, said this would this this process would could work really well on Fenua, Mana Fenua land, yeah. Maori land. Totally. But actually, um, a lot of iwi are actually building a lot of homes, aren't they, on adjacent to Marae and so on. That yeah. uh, that that area of the housing uh, market or the the sort of investment in housing sometimes gets a bit forgotten, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, Bernard, what do you I mean? Both of you, really, you're the experts. Yeah, and it does. And there's a lot of really good stuff happening. I, I just a couple of comments, though. You know, it, I mean, it's great that this is being built. Um, I guess there's an issue about the quality. So as long as it's being built to quality, but I think one of the interesting issues with Iwi there is is that, and I think this is just a, a misunderstanding they have is. I think they feel as if land is the asset that's the critical part of the equation. It absolutely is not. So if you look at one of our developments, land is never more than 20% of the value of it, right? So even if the land was free, 
these things would still only be 25% you know, cheaper. It's, it's the actual building of them, and it's a building at scale that creates the supply. So we're having plenty of chats with iwi because we're building significantly cheaper than they are and can do it yes. to a significantly greater scale. So, yeah. and I'm, I'm going to talk to a friend of mine at Kaigoor about this as well. It sounds yeah. very interesting. I, this is why I think we should bring you into Nicola Willis. But can I also point out that Bernard is not a paid lobbyist for simplicity and nor am I. No. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> or even no, an no. unpaid lobbyist, actually. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I really enjoyed the visit. It, it, it's given me lots of ideas the Architecture and Design Film Festival is on, and Pete uh, Dion, who's a lovely chap who's on this, uh, I think probably you're listening to this podcast now, took me last night to a terrific premiere of it, which is a documentary about um, Robin Hood Gardens, which was one of those brutalist, uh, spectacular and rather amazing public housing apartment buildings in in London, which ultimately was demolished. Most of its residents hated it. But I think there's, you know, there's a lot to be learned from the kinds of places that people actually like living in and the ongoing investment that's required as well. Yeah, we spend heaps of time going through, you know, London, Berlin, uh, Paris. There's a whole lot of actually examples of this uh, in the OECD of where it works. But yeah, plenty of examples of where it's been a disaster as well. Now, Sam, um, you, you, you're um, also a, a veteran of the banking industry mm. and the finance industries. Uh, this week, uh, we got information showing that the banks were receiving billions of dollars a year in interest payments from the government, not to mention $19 billion worth of subsidised loans from the government or the Reserve Bank. You're not quite competing with the banks, although you are obviously in the funds management area. Um, What did you think of this? I thought it was farcical. I mean, I thought for a long time that the funding to lending program was was kind of crazy in the sense that it may have made sense when you're in an absolute panic so that you want credit in the economy so you give it to the banks for nothing. But now to have that program rolling on and it's completely within the control of the Reserve Bank to cut the cord on that. So, you know, I have general favour of Reserve Bank moves, but not at this case. I think that's just absolutely mad. So, And I think they did it because they didn't want to sour relations with, with the banks, or at least they want to say, we've made a promise, we want to keep it now. Of course, that's just been Christmas for the banks, as you can imagine. Free money, which they then on-lend, and, or, and they either don't, don't on-lend it, in which case it's cost them nothing, or they lend it on to low-risk projects that they would have funded anyway. So it's, it, you know, it, it's free money. Then this one about the, the Reserve Bank paying them 5% to deposit cash because they don't want that money in the economy to make the world overly inflationary. I mean, like, I, I'm kind of flabbergasted because I think the you know, conversation we're having is if they're paying a half a percent or a 1% because they wanted that money to be parked and out of the economy, that kind of makes sense if you have this macroeconomic view that you don't want banks lending to stimulate growth and inflation, right? And, and the banks add a half or 1% would probably, you know, not have done that and they would have gone off and done something else. But they could have equally parked it in, you know, private sector bonds and got that 5%. Mm. They would have found a way of maximising the returns. But they get to park it with the Reserve Bank. That says, we'll take as much cash as you want, we'll give you 5% return on it. Right. I mean, this is like, hello, and I can understand that down in Wellington, there's some, you know, treasury theory which says, Yes, well, you know, we have this, you know, relationship. This is a very good way of getting money out of the economy. But at what price? Like, that's an insane return. And remember, every one of those dollars paid is one of our dollars. Like, I know. This, this is a direct pipeline from the public of New Zealand to the Aussie banks. Poor them, like they really need the money. 
you know, they yeah. made 10 billion in pre-tax profits last year. Like, let's get, you know, let, let's have a whip round in, in Wellington. Uh, so I don't, you know, as I say, generally in favour of Reserve Bank policies in New Zealand, but this one, I do not know what they were thinking. Yeah, no, you're right, Sam. And also, this is all at the same time as the government is regularly saying no to people when they're asking for, you know, uh, the drugs that could save their lives or the extra teachers and nurses to make our health system run or the extra buses we need to reduce our emissions. So it's... uh, Yeah, and here's the particularly dumb thing about it, Bernard, is Grant Robinson obviously explored this and thought this is a fairly... And he's no idiot, Grant, you know, so he Mm. worked this out, right? But he gets... I, I don't know why he allowed himself to be overridden or maybe he didn't have the authority to override the that. But but that's a very... This is a, an arcane Wellington propeller head approach to what is a practical... <laughs> I do like the idea of of, um, of uh, Grant Robertson with one of those propeller head things on us. <laughs> oh, no, no. I think he was being the practical guy and there's some propeller heads down there. <laughs> down at Wellington. This is like, yeah, I'm sorry, this is not theoretically right. You've got to be joking. Come on. Yeah. Mm. For a few million, I get it, but for a few billion, it's time mm. to rethink. I mean, there's, so there's a sort of there's a very out of touchness about this, and I think you know the funding for lending program, which most people can understand. I don't think most people can understand what goes on with parking cash at the Reserve Bank and getting paid five percent, but most people can understand. Listen, the government is giving the banks free money to lend to stimulate the economy. On one hand, they keep that process, and on the other hand, what they're saying is, oh no, we don't want the economy stimulated, so please park money with us, and we'll give you five percent. So on one hand, we're giving you money for nothing to lend and make money. And on the other hand, you can deposit back with us and we'll give you 5%. It's like a, giving a 5% margin to a private bank that's already vastly profitable. Sam, thank you very much. It's been lovely Thanks, to Sam. talk we'll, to you. We'll, we'll expect the usual you know, delivery of champagne as soon as you're ah. <laughs> <laughs> you so cynic, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have you around <laughs> for you. champagne. Well, really good Peter, to see you. who have you got joining the hoon there? Well, it's a skateboarding dog. It's Banjo. Banjo, the most intelligent dog in Auckland. It's a skateboarding dog. He is not my dog, but he is one of the... In fact, Banjo recently won a prize from Benny, who I believe is a popular young singer, for being the most intelligent dog in the whole of uh, Rodney, Cat Rodney, north of Auckland. And you know, so the skateboard Banjo does a really, really cool windsurfing? couple of tricks. Is it windsurfing Doesn't, as well? He does. He does. You know, he can jump at request. You know, he's he's a but he's an intelligent little fellow. You may meet him a little bit later on. But the actual skateboarding dog dog story that I well he's a, he's the skateboarding dog. But the story that I found, you know, you remember we talked about this before. Possibly Tom Lehrer, the guy who came up with the song "Poisoning Pigeons in the Park." Um, 33 years ago and who has been silent ever since because when uh, Henry Kissinger won the Nobel Prize he said you know this is mm. the this is the end of of um, Christ what did he say it was the end of irony that's right that's right so this week the Daily Mail invoked the uh, Human Rights Act in the UK to prevent it having to be being able to publicly identify or having to publicly identify the 72 journalists and editors of the Daily Mail over the last 10 or 15 years uh, in an extraordinary case that's rolling on at the moment with Prince Harry, Elton uh-huh. John, Hugh Grant, uh, Sadie Frost, and and others. You know, and these these guys even allegedly got the birth certificate of uh, and medical records of Elton John's child. You know, they got all sorts of stuff. But to, for the Daily Mail to invoke the Human Rights Act to protect the identity of its journalists is pretty amusing, given its position on, you know. On Brexit and so on. I'm with Hugh Grant on this. He's he's turned into yeah, a quite much a as that, um, much as we want access to information, good foyers, all of that. Yeah. But anyway, I'm going to go and take uh, 
banjo soon to dinner with you, actually, I think, Bernard. Hopefully. Yeah, fish and banjo chips. I'm looking forward to the fish extremely and chips. cool. There's Bernard. There's yeah. Uncle Bernard. Hi, Banjo. And all our Welcome. lovely audience. And our audience at the Hoon. Hey, it's yeah. been a wonderful evening. Thank you very much. Thank you also to Simon, our producer. <laughs> that has been the Hoon for the week to March 31. I'm Bernard Hickey with Peter Bale. And Banjo. And Banjo. <laughs> See you. See you later. Bye.